Let's go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 3. Thank you all for being here and joining me once again as we walk through uh, the book of Esther. Um, just as a little recap, uh, as, as we have read and looked over before uh, in chapter 1, um, you see Esther, well you don't see Esther yet, um, you see King Ahasuerus and, uh, and, and his uh, display of splendor and glory and all his riches and, and his power right, for 180 days and then uh, for an additional uh, week he, he, uh, he provides a feast for the people um, and, and it's, again all of this is to uh, show his splendor, his glory and all that. Um, and to show the people, you know, how powerful he is. And he lavished them, right, with royal wine and, and the bounty of the king and all of that good stuff. Um, there was a lot of drinking. There was a lot of partying, right? And then uh, comes along Queen Vashti. Uh, she uh, refuses the king's summon, uh, which is implied that it would be against the law, right? If you're the king and you tell somebody to do something, you know, that person's got to do it. And um, that that also goes for the queen. You know, she's not excluded. Um, so the king obviously gets very mad, um, though I will say probably in a drunken stupor. But um, that allows for the occasion for Esther to come in, right? Uh, Vashti is kind of disowned. Um, she is no longer the queen, uh, as was advised by his advisors, um, specifically Memucan, saying, you know, you got queen, you got the queen, you know, who's kind of like the face of the women of the country, of uh, of the empire, and uh, she is refusing you. She is uh, saying no to you, and that's not good. You know, that's not a good image, a good uh, example to set before the people. So. What do you do? You find a new queen, right? And that's when we get to chapter 2, where we were last week, um, where the king holds this beauty pageant uh, of beautiful virgin women of uh, the empire. And among the the women who come uh, is Esther. And she is especially beautiful. She is especially, uh, she catches the attention of the king. Uh, really, she catches the attention of everybody, and um, and it wasn't like she was, you know, flashy and, and trying to uh, garner attention for herself. But we talked about, as we talked about last week, you know, in her humility and in her just meekness and, and doing what, you know, living the life that that she knows to be right, um, she still uh, gets the the attention of the king, and she is chosen to be queen. Uh, and then at the end of that uh, chapter um, is uh, Mordecai discovering the plot uh, of two uh, eunuchs um, plotting to assassinate uh, King Hazarus. And upon finding out, Mordecai goes to Esther, and Esther advises the king, and the king discovers the plot, and and the two potential assassins are hanged, and uh, Basically, Mordecai saves the day, right? And um, and we also see how you know the characters of these people, right? In chapter one, we saw the character of Ahasuerus, 
kind of leadership or the leader that he is. Uh, and then we see Esther, you know, what kind of person that she is, um, her humility, her meekness, and her just keeping to herself and not being overly ambitious or flashy or anything like that. And then Mordecai, what kind of, uh, well, he is a government official, so what kind of leader he is, you know, he's not a ruler or anything, but he is still a, 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 of some leadership capacity, right? So what kind of leader he is, what kind of character, personality, uh, different things like that. Um, and we see that he is a good caretaker, right? He is a faithful uh, father figure to Esther, even when he is not able to physically come in contact with Esther uh, because she is in the court of the harem of the king, and he is obviously, Mordecai is not obviously allowed to go in there. Um, he still keeps up with her, does her, or does his best to uh, to basically care about her and care for her in ways that he can, even if he can't be there physically for her. So a lot of exposition, a lot of uh, character development, a lot of introductions, um, and the story, the plot thickens, as they say, in chapter 3. So let's go ahead and uh, read chapter 3. If somebody will please read from verse 1 of chapter 3 through... Verse 6. We'll start there. Okay, so we get our first uh, interaction with these characters. Now we see uh, Haman, right, this new character. Um, he is the antagonist of the story. Um, and uh, also keep in mind going throughout, Haman is the, uh, well, the author of Esther draws heavy comparison between Haman and, and Mordecai. And we see those two main characters clashing for the first time. And the occasion for this clash is that Haman is uh, elevated to a, a very high position. It seems on, as, as if it's second to uh, only the king, King Ahasuerus. And with this promotion comes uh, the king's command to, uh, whenever Haman walks about or walks around you, you bow down to him, right? And then you pay homage to, to his presence. And Mordecai being a Jew, right? And we talked about how uh, the book of Esther uh, is one of the couple of books that does not have the name of God in it, right? The author does not specifically and explicitly name God or mention him. And yet we see through the actions, the decisions of the characters, our protagonists, uh, their decision-making, their, their characteristics, their personalities, whatever, all of these things point to God, even though the author did not choose to specifically and explicitly name God in the book. We see an example of that here. Why would Mordecai not bow down to Haman? Well, I would suggest that this more points to Mordecai's identity as a Jew. That's what I, that's what oh, okay. I, that's what I was having. You, I think evidently as well. Yes. Involved, that, that involved, that. Right. Right. So, 
we see a case here of Mordecai making a conscious decision as to not bow down. Now, this is the king's command. We have seen how the king is with his commands. He's pretty strict. Even the queen was not exempt from this. When the king says, you do something, you do it. And we see Mordecai here making that conscious decision. Right? In that moment where, as a government official and as a citizen of the Persian Empire, he should have listened to the king, right, in terms of legality. right? He should have. He's a, a, a high, uh, someone of authority, of, of, of borrowed authority from the king, right, as a government official. And yet, here he is, Mordecai, choosing not to follow the king's command and bowing down to Haman. We see a similar thing happening in Daniel, right? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were commanded, right, to... By the way, before that story, Daniel uh, kind of recommends them to the king, right, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they become officials as well, right, position in the government of the Babylonian Empire. Well, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar uh, erects a, a, a golden image of himself and tells people to bow down to him, what do those three do? They choose not to, right? Or what about Daniel before he was thrown into the lion's den, right? There was a, 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 an edict of sorts uh, put out by King Darius saying, you, you can't pray to another god. You can't pray to your god. You can only pray to the king. Well, Daniel, hearing that, knowing what would happen, goes up to kind of a, a, his, his uh, wherever his living, w- with windows, it says, uh, where people can see, visibly see what he is doing. And what does he do? He faces to the direction of Jerusalem and he prays, right, as he had been doing thus far. So we have many cases like this, examples of God's people going against unjust laws or laws that, that are contradictory to God's laws right, and commandments, uh, oftentimes having to do with worship or prayer or things like that. And despite knowing the consequences of, quote-unquote, breaking those human laws, they do it, right? Because they know, they understand that at the end of the day, what's more important is following God's laws and God's commandments, right? And and being a part of God's will rather than man's will. So you see Mordecai making this decision, and the most significant part of this that we need to get away from this is that this is just another example of how God is present in the book of Esther. That that Esther is not a godless book, though God is not named in the book through the decisions that people make the characters in the story make, um, the, the identity that they identify with as a Jew, right? These things point to God. Um, and another example I have in my notes is uh, the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man, right? See another example of that. That's a New Testament example. Um, so, and then Mordecai's uh, religious identity is revealed. So, so, so far, you know, Mordecai advised that Esther hide her identity as a Jew, right, which um, kept her from, you know, buying unwanted attention. And, and that has allowed her to uh, get up, I guess, in the steps of 
really being a queen, right? And and though their their both of their identity as a Jew is not yet really known until this point when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman and other officials, and it wasn't Haman just yet, other officials see Mordecai do this, right? Officials of the king's court sees Mordecai do or not bow down to Haman, and they ask him, why are you disobeying the king's commands, right? You of all people should be obeying what the king has commanded. And Mordecai answers, well, tells them, the text says, he tells them, who he is. And to confirm this, these two officials go to Haman and ask him, hey, you should probably check this out and you should confirm whether or not this is true. And Haman, of course, goes in front of Mordecai or walks in front of him to, to confirm it and Mordecai does not bow. And therefore, it is confirmed that Mordecai is a, a Jew, and because of that, that is the motivation for his disobedience to this, the king's command to bow before Haman whenever Haman is present. So again, Mordecai, um, uh, w- w- with this knowledge of what can happen to him, chooses to follow God's commands instead of Haman or anybody else, a king, right? And Haman, with this knowledge, now plots, begins to plot, not just to destroy Mordecai, but the entire people that Mordecai belongs to, referring to the Jews. So we have our main conflict here of Esther. So let's move on from uh, verse 7 through 15. Can someone read verse 7 through 15, please? Okay, so we read of Haman casting the lots, right? Um, casting of Pur. Uh, and he does this for an entire year, right? Um, so one thing about Esther that we also should remember is that Esther is a book of a lot of reversals. There's a lot of irony going on. Uh, as we read throughout, um, and this will be, this will become more and more clear as we go through the, the latter half of uh, the book, because there's a lot of mirroring going on that you'll see. Um, if, if you look at the packet that I, I gave you with the, um, with the outline of the entire book, you can kind of see what the author is doing in terms of the mirroring thing, right? And, and there's a lot of comparisons. There's a lot of these devices of Esther that, that we need to keep in mind. But one of the things is... Uh, that es- the author of Esther does is with these reversals and with these weird and coincidental and almost strange happenings uh, in the story of Esther, he uses those to emphasize the providence of God, uh, the workings of God that's behind the scenes. Right? In a lot of these books, uh, in the books of the Bible, you know, we read of things like the Lord said or uh, the Lord commanded, or the Lord did this, or the Lord did that, right? Especially in the Old Testament, right? But Esther doesn't have that because obviously Esther doesn't mention the name of God explicitly. So we as readers have to uh, infer what is impl- yes. Read between the lines. Exactly, exactly. We have to read between the lines and see God woven throughout the narrative of the story instead of. 
uh, you know, the author just straight up telling us, okay, so God caused the, the, you know, the lot to, you know, fall a certain way for an entire year, right? These kinds of things, when we read them in Esther, just remember that God is working behind the scenes uh, in Esther throughout. Um, so the casting of Pur, the, the lots, that will become significant, obviously, later on. As we talked about, Esther is kind of like the origin story of how the Feast of Purim became to be, right, uh, or, or the motivation behind it, um, and, and the background of that feast. So uh, the, the Pur will become significant later on. Um, and then we read of Haman's uh, plan. So Haman uses the Jewish laws as the main thrust, right, his point to convince the king to allow him to exterminate, really, and, and plunder the Jews, right? Not only does Haman manipulate the king uh, in, into doing his own selfish and, and malicious uh, desires, he exploits the religious identity of the Jews to help him enact this plan. Again, the identity of the Jews come back into play, right? And, and again, it points to God being present throughout the, the text of Esther. Um, really the most villain, villainous villains of the Bible throughout the stories of the Bible are the ones that take advantage of the weak, uh, the ones who are peaceful, the ones who are trying to do right by God um, and right by his fellow man, and taking advantage of that, using that as a weakness, as a loophole to um, exploit them and to take advantage of them, right? The peaceful and devoted nature of God's people are often used by uh, people with malicious intent throughout history to... Again, to exploit them, to uh, trample over them. Um, I mean, how many times? Uh, I think my mind always automatically goes to Jesus. You know, how many times did people like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious elites of his day, how many times did they try to uh, kind of trip up Jesus every time he was doing good, every time he was healing somebody, every time he was preaching the gospel, every time he was doing X, Y, and Z? How many times do they show up and use scripture to try to trip Jesus up or try to trap him in his own teachings? But obviously Jesus being the source of it all, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not bothered by it. But it goes to show people will use uh, your beliefs. People will use your identity. People will use what you stand for. And they will see that as weakness. And they will see that as weak points, and they will try to exploit it. Um, that's another, I think, a significant theme of Esther is that Mordecai could not have could not have possibly gotten out of this situation, right? He he did what he what he thought was right. He stood for what he stood for, and what he believed, and that is that he would not bow to any man aside from. Well, God's not man, but he would not bow down to any man because he believes in God. He trusts that God is the only one who is deserving of worship. That was his identity as a Jew, as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, right? Allegiance to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my allegiance to you. That's right. what that all 
That's why idolatry is such a big problem in the Old Testament, because bowing down to an image that is not God, it's not just the act of bowing down that's problematic. It's what it implies. Like you said, it's an allegiance thing, right? You bow down to something, then you are loyal to that thing. You you, you may convince yourself that you can kind of sit on the fence and, and... and do both sides at the same time. But when you, as soon as you bow down to something, either metaphorically or physically, right? either way, you're taking your allegiance away from God. That's why God hates idolatry throughout the Old Testament. And really, even to today, right? Now, we, might, we may not bow down to images. We may not bow down to statues. But we have other things right, that we give, give our allegiance to, right? So we see Mordecai doing what he deems is right in God's eyes, right? But the consequences are too big, right? Have you ever been in that kind of situation where you do what's right and when you stand for what you believe in, but the backfire is too much, the heat is too much to take? Have you ever been in those situations? What Esther's story, and this is kind of a spoiler, but I'm, I'm sure you, you're familiar with the story of Esther, so I'm not really spoiling anything. You know how the story of Esther goes. Mordecai, I'm sure he had uh, expected some kind of backfire for his uh, uh, not keeping the king's command of bowing down to Haman. But surely he did not expect the extermination of the entire Jewish population throughout the empire of Persia. Surely he did not foresee that coming. And yet it did. And he finds himself in that situation. Then what do you do? And I think the lesson of Esther, apart from the humility, apart from you know, being part of God's will, uh, despite not seeing, not being able to see you know, God in your situations, I think what Esther is teaching us is that sometimes the consequences are too big for us to handle. But you know what? We're still expected to follow God. We are still expected to do God's will. And guess what the most marvelous part of that is? Is that God will handle it. At the moment, in that moment, I'm sure Mordecai was panicking. And, and he does. He, he, and you will see in chapter 4, he rips his you know, garments and, and he, he is in sackcloth and ashes. He is fasting. He is, he is terrified. And he goes to Esther and he, he begs her to do something because she is in a position where she can at least talk to the king. Right? Mordecai is terrified. Uh, and to, certain, to some degree, this was caused by his standing up for his faith. But the lesson of Esther is, was not for Mordecai to back down from what he believed in or back down from what he knew God commanded him to do. No, it was that he stood up for what he believed in and he stood up for what was right. And when the consequences were too big for him alone to handle or for him and Esther alone to handle, God steps in. And then at the end of the day, God's will is done. And God preserves his people. When I read this, and when I consider Mordecai's uh, situation, because I'm sure it would have been 
nerve-wracking and terrifying to find out that because he didn't bow down to Haman, now all of his people throughout the empire of Persia are going to be exterminated if he doesn't do something. But when I think about this, when I consider his position, I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything, right, all these things will be added to you, right? God did not command us to worry about the ins and outs of his plan. God did not command us to know all things and to put it into place. That's not our place. When push comes to shove, when things get dicey, all we are called to do, all we are commanded to do, is to look to God. We can pray. We can, we can fast. Fasting is, is a, a, a spiritual discipline in the Bible that we often overlook. We can do all these things. But one thing we're not told to do is to run around like, like a chicken with his head cut off. Right? We do not have the ability to make the universe move around for our will. But we serve a God who has that ability right? and who is doing that. So uh, when I consider Mordecai in this situation, I think to that, and I think that's a lesson for us because we find ourselves often in cultures that are contradictory to what we believe in, to what we stand for, right? Cultures that are outright uh, opposing, right, what we try to do in our faith life and in our spiritual walks. So we often find ourselves in the same situation that Mordecai does, Right? And sometimes it is true. The consequences are too big. Right? But even in those moments, we are called to trust in God. Um, and I think that's a lesson that we learn from Mordecai in this situation. So some other things. Uh, obviously, we talked about Mordecai's courage. Right? Uh, he didn't. He didn't anticipate all this to happen, a, a genocide to put into place because he did, he simply didn't bow to a man. Right? And yet, here he is in this situation. Um, but we will see how Mordecai and Esther try to make best of what they can do in their situations, in the places that they have been put in, in their lives, uh, to do uh, God's will. Um, and then we see, uh, I think, something else we, we notice with chapter 2, and, or sorry, chapter 3, and, and really what we've seen in chapter 1, too, uh, a little glimpse of it is the king's continued lack of leadership, right? When we talked about, you know, how, you know how I feel about King Ahasuerus. I told you when we talked about chapter 1, I think he's a terrible king. I think he's not a good ruler. He's wishy-washy. He's always drunk, right? And he, he acts, he, he does legal action, legal stuff that change lives of people uh, when he's drunk and, and based off, off his emotions, right, heightened Emotions. I don't think he's a good leader at all, but we see once again his lack of leadership. Right in the middle of all of this between Haman and, and Mordecai and, and his or, uh, Haman's uh, vengeance against the Jews. Uh, by the way, note that it says Haman is uh, a descendant of the Agagites. Right, that is significant because remember, uh, Mordecai is a Benjaminite. Right. And who is from the tribe of Benjamin that we know? King Saul. Who did Saul fail to kill and exterminate as God commanded? Samuel. Samuel to kill. <laughs> is King Agag, the Amalekite, right? 
And that's how, that was kind of like the final straw before God, you know, basically disowned Saul. He said, I reject Saul as, as my, as a king over my people. Um, so there's, there's like this history going on here too. But anyway, between all of this is the king. And it seems like he's being swayed back and forth, uh, just being convinced of every word that his advisors would tell him, right? Uh, if you'll remember, Mordecai saved the king. It was even recorded in the chronicles, right? The, the records of, of these good deeds that, that you know, the, the king would have been able to read and to be aware of. And yet here he is about to kill not only Mordecai, but his entire people just because he didn't pay enough attention. He was probably drunk, and he only just listens to the advisor's uh, words and just takes face value for it, right? So I think something that we can learn from this is uh, that when leadership is weak, right, or if there's a lack of leadership, a lack thereof, that gives platform for evil people, evil influences to take advantage of that. And that in turn, affects good and righteous people. So uh, the poor leadership and or just the downright bad leadership of King Hazarus is not just something to sneeze at, right? It's bad because when people who are in power fail to do what is right, fail to lead in a righteous and good way as God ordained, right, leaders of this world to lead people, when they fail to do that, they give platform. Right? Sometimes good people can take that, uh, fill that vacuum, and that's lucky, right? But sometimes bad people, like Haman, can use that as an opportunity to sway power and to use it for their own uh, bad will. So Haman is evil for sure. I mean, I think that's pretty much established. I mean, the man is trying to commit genocide because somebody didn't bow down to him. Haman's evil, right? That's for, that's for sure. But it was also the king's lack of good leadership that gave Haman's hate a platform, right? In the vacuum of good leadership, when good leadership is lacking, right, bad leadership can take over and... And with leadership, somebody will take over. Somebody will grab that power and use it, right? So, any questions, comments before we move on? So, uh, we're at the conclusion of chapter three. Um, it was a, it wasn't a long chapter, uh, but a lot did happen. Um, and the main thing to take away from the narrative uh, standpoint of it all is uh, uh, the fact that we now have the main conflict, right, of the narrative. Uh, We have, I mean, we have the villain of the conflict, and the the story continues. And in chapter four, we'll see, um, and this is really the the meat of the story. Um, The series is named after, or titled after, Esther's reply to Mordecai, when Mordecai says. Well, I won't spoil it, but chapter 4 is really important in terms of uh, the character of Esther, um, the character of Mordecai, and and there's a lot to be learned from there. Um, but to conclude uh, chapter 3, I think a prevailing theme of chapter 3 um, that we can get away with seems to be 
that good and righteous people of God will often be hated or villainized or just be abused in general because of their devotion to God. We ought not to be surprised when people hate us for standing up for God or standing up for Jesus. Right? I mean, even Jesus tells us as that much. Right? The world hated Jesus first. So we as his disciples should also expect that kind of backfire, that kind of pushback. Right? We should not be surprised. And it's not uncommon that people who do not like the people of faith to use faith or to use uh, our stance on things or our stand for faith uh, and our, our nature of peacefulness, our uh, good works and things like that. It's not uncommon for people, evil people, to use that against us, right? to see that as weakness and to try to turn it around against us, like Haman does with uh, Mordecai and the Jewish people in chapter 3 of Esther. So we shouldn't be surprised. And yet, and here is the lesson, and yet we must still be like Mordecai. We can expect the worst. Maybe, I mean, we're not in that kind of society, but... I mean, some of the earlier Christians, they knew that taking on faith would mean certain death if people found out. And yet they still chose to do that, and they still chose to stand up for it. Are we taking on that same kind of spirit in our Christian lives? Although we're not in a situation where we're, you know, our lives are threatened because we go to church or anything like that, at least not yet. But are we still taking on that same spirit? as those early Christians, as Mordecai did when he refused to bow down to Haman, even though he knew that bowing down to Haman in his presence was a king's command. I think it's a worthy question to ask ourselves um, because we often find ourselves in complacency, right? in the lack of these challenges, in the lack of these persecutions, though we are blessed in, in, to live in a society where we don't have to fear those things we have another problem of complacency. So we need to ask those questions and challenge ourselves to see whether we are really for our faith. So I'm sure when Mordecai refused to bow, you know, he didn't, again, he didn't imagine a genocide happening. And yet God still found a way. And God will still find a way through our lives to preserve his people, right, and let his will prevail over all others. So all we got to do is trust him, right, and to obey him. And to submit to him. That's all we got to do. That's all God asks of us. Right? Um, God doesn't have to use us. Right? He doesn't have to. We are flawed people. We often fail him. God doesn't have to use us. And yet he still chooses to do so. That alone should motivate us to be servants for God. That alone should inspire us to love God. And not to just begrudgingly do things for God, right? Just to be a part of His will so we can kind of sneak into heaven, right? No. We should do things. We should stand up for God. We should live according to our faith because we love God. Um, just a quick <laughs> story. I think of, uh, when I think of that, um, I'm sure you've, all of you have had this uh, happen to you. Uh, you know, when, when my car broke down, 
my dad would, you know, go and try to look at it, even though I knew he couldn't fix it. You know, he'd end up taking it to the mechanic anyway, but he would open the hood and act like he's, you know, doing something or whatever. And then I would always be there right beside him holding the flashlight or something or, like, grabbing a, a tool that he said, and I just have no idea what he's talking about. And sometimes he would get frustrated, and I would get mad. You know, why'd you call me out? Like, you know, it's hot. You know, it's I'm sweating. I'm not even helping you do anything. You're not doing anything. You know, and you're just getting mad at me. Um, but the older I get and the, the more I mature, and I look back to those moments, uh, you know, back then I would think, you know, Dad must really hate me if he, if he calls me out when I'm playing video games, if he makes me pause that and go out and help him look at the car that he probably won't even fix on a hot day. But now I look back to those moments. You know, I've moved out and, and I'm by myself now. I look back to those moments and I just think, you know, maybe he just wanted to spend time with me. Maybe he just wanted to, you know, impart some fatherly wisdom or have an opportunity to just spend time with his son, even if it's hot outside, even if it's, even if he himself gets frustrated because he knows he can't do anything about that car and he ends up taking it to the mechanic. I feel like God is the same way with us. We're not perfect and Obviously, characters like Mordecai and Esther, they're not perfect either. And yet, God still uses them. God still chooses to have a relationship with them. And I wonder if it's because God just wants us to be with Him. God just wants us to love Him and to work with Him in His will. So let's remember that as we go throughout this week. Hopefully, all the decisions that you make throughout the week, you will have God in mind. right? Even though we can't see God physically, right? God is still working with us, and we got to remember that. All right. Thank you very much.